0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, All right. Hey, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. And it's nice to have Alexandra Kleeman on the show today. She is back on the program for a second time celebrating the publication of a new novel. It's out on Hogarth and it is called Something New Under the Sun. You've probably read about it. It's been uh, generating a lot of buzz. There's been a lot of acclaim. There was a New York Times feature about uh, Alex that you may have seen. And I had such a nice time talking with her. So stay tuned. Alexander Kleeman coming up. Once again, her new novel is called Something New Under the Sun. Today's episode is brought to you by Gray Wolf Press, publisher of The Swank Hotel, the new novel by Lucy Corin. This is an unforgettable novel that interrogates the illusory dream of stability that pervaded early 21st century America. Booklist says, quote, "Corin's novel unveils the madness that permeates society by scrutinizing trauma, cultural expectations, and the political and economic climate of the 21st century." That's the Swank Hotel, the new novel by Lucy Corin, available now from Graywolf Press. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book, but failing, if you're failing to write a book, but wishing you could, if you've written a book, but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career. Writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also The Funniest by a Country Mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. So, Alexandra Kleeman is today's guest. Her other books include a story collection called Intimations and the debut novel You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine which was awarded the 2016 Bard Fiction Prize. In uh, 2020, Alex was awarded the Rome Prize and the Berlin Prize. She got prizes from uh, two European capitals. Come on. Her work has been published in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Zoetrope, Guernica, and uh, elsewhere and I'm really pleased to share the conversation that we had it's a good one and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did here she is folks this is Alexandra Kleeman and her new novel one more time is called Something New Under the Sun
1: well for the LA component you know I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid my Asian half of the family lives in the San Gabriel Valley which is a good hour i feel from any place else in la we used to drive an hour to two hours to visit you know other family members in long beach or in uh uh, redondo beach and places like that and it always seemed like this interminable amount of time spent in the car looking out at the other cars crawling along with me um and i'm channeling a lot of that like the sort of fascination at this place that in a lot of ways resembles whatever you want it to be if you put enough time and energy and water into it but then um, as soon as you stop tending it like this line behind our subdivision it's it's bramble and coyotes and and a very dry combustible sort of hill environment so i always had questions about that when i was growing up like why is everyone working so hard to make this place look like every place else um and uh i knew that when i wrote My second novel, um, which I wanted to have, like, partake of place in a really different way from my first sort of surreal anyplace novel, um, that I wanted to be in the West. Um, In terms of Hollywood, you know, um, I've had a little bit of experience adapting my novel for for screenplay or appearing um, as myself um, in a film that my first editor's brother made about their life so um he wanted to populate it with people who um actually had roles in his family's life and i was there for one day on set a very long day that started at like 5 a.m and went until 5 or 6 p.m and involved so much waiting around and um i think that that time spent on set was really interesting and really elastic me because it seemed like you could be in this timeless zone just standing around waiting to be called and then suddenly when cameras were rolling you were there in the real time and every second was was solid and substantial and could be put right up on screen you know but um the aimlessness of the time around those little bits of a film time were fascinating to me too and you kind of dwell in that time when you live on set in this sort of purgatorial space
0: yeah, I've I've often thought about that with respect to acting because I've I've not spent like a long day on set like that, but I know I, you know living here and being among movie people, you sort of hear about how much downtime there is, or reading any kind of Hollywood profile, it's always like you know lament the lamenting of the downtime, and then you couple that with somebody giving like a really difficult performance on screen, like if the subject matter especially is really grueling, or it's like Charlize Theron and Monster, you know, <laughs> like something yes, like that. Yes. And it's like, oh my God, like she was at Craft Services or like holed up in her trailer, like meditating for four hours and then finally gets called out and has to do like 10 takes of really, you know, layered and combustible and difficult, like emotional acting. I guess I'm like, I mean, I'm impressed anyway when somebody's able to do that effectively on camera, but I think I'm maybe doubly impressed when they've done it. Um, you know, while coming out of that kind of like boredom and, um, like what's the word for it? You know, that sort of, uh middle ground or that like liminal space or whatever, where you just got to sort of exist and in wait while they fix the lighting.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're drifting around, you're unanchored, and then suddenly you're expected to snap back into this fictive situation, you know, and channel all that energy. Like I think it's fascinating and I really admire actors for being able to do that. And at the same time, I think that if I, were to try to do that in a serious way, it would result in me becoming completely unmoored, you know, from who I am and not sure how to, how to deal with my energy flow. Not sure which world I was living in. Um, both in terms of acting and in terms of, um, uh, developing things for TV. I've, I've been fascinated by the way that, um, People think in Hollywood in these extremely plastic, adaptive, quick thinking, and malleable terms. Like with any story um, that you start talking about with a TV writer, one of my closest friends is a TV writer. uh, They're able to ask the question, like, "Can we beat this plot point? Can we beat this language?" Um, uh, And that both, you know, seems exhilarating, like um, a way of ding beneath what you can first think of or know about a story to to some really surprising stuff but also um uh, again unsettling that that nothing necessarily has to be a particular way in the screenplay it can always be changed and bettered or shifted
0: yeah no i mean so you've written a little bit like it sounds like you've done some adaptation of your own work and then have maybe written like a pilot or something
1: Yeah, we, um, my friend and I were working for a while on a, um, a TV adaptation of the Todd Haynes movie, Safe, which is one of my longtime favorites. Um, in in fact, like, I feel like my imagination was really heavily shaped by seeing some scenes from that movie when I was a little too young, the like clean, um, uh, valley sort of spaces with endless carpeting and then the dangers therein, um, and uh, whether we were sort of, like, taking this movie, which has a very particular tone and a very Todd, Hay- Todd Haynes aesthetic, and then trying to think, like, how can we shift the pacing how can we shift the um, the level of drama and uh, uh, how can we toggle some of these other genre things that are there on um, a sort of low-key setting and, and turn up the horror or turn turn down the horror from how you normally expect it to appear in a uh, a movie or or tv show
0: yeah i've done a little bit of writing for tv and what i was struck by is like just how much i was expected to get on the page in terms of like stuff Mm -hmm. happening and drama and i guess it you know for somebody with like a literary background and and especially like a, a literary background within the subset of literature you know where there's a little bit or a lot more latitude in terms of action and, you know, an entire novel can be sustained inside of a person's head, you know, like, (laughs) but with, with the expectations of television executives, and then also like a television audience, there's a lot that has to get accomplished. And, um, I just, I think my sensibility resisted it. I was like, wow, that's too much, you know, like, (sighs) these explosions on page one and you know or whatever it is you know just some big huge thing seems to have to happen every five seconds and uh, i resisted it but yet i guess i i understood it you know and um on a certain level and i i say that and then i think of your protagonist um who is the author of a novel called elsinore lane and he's out in hollywood because they're adapting his novel for the screen, or at least he thinks that they are. And, yeah. um, his name is Patrick and what is he? he's kind of he's somewhat anti-heroic or what's the, what's the right way to encapsulate him? You know, he, I don't know. He feels very familiar to me. <laughs> and, uh, And they make him a PA on the set, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, I I guess, I mean, you did intend that as a joke, right? The way that writers, writers of of, uh, writers in general are, you know, historically mistreated uh, in the Hollywood machine. But I think maybe especially the writers of books whose work is being adapted, like there's even more distance and like permissiveness when it comes to abuse. Uh, so I guess well, like, I'm i curious to know why you did that and if that was born of like any personal bad experiences you've had working uh, in Hollywood.
1: You know, not personal bad experiences. But one thing I think I've noticed about writers is um, uh, writers, however much they love and maybe are addicted to writing, also I think have... This curiosity in them about like, what what would happen if I threw this all away and started at the bottom of something else like I, I know friends who are writers who've um, you know taken entry level jobs as cooks in restaurants to see what that's like on on the off chance that something there and that experience might spark um, a, a story or a novel or a memoir um, I know that it, my husband and I he's also a writer and we love movies like uh sometimes different movies we have a big overlapping zone where we're passionate about the same sort of films but um we talk a lot about how we've got this unfailing sort of optimism for for Hollywood and the film industry like we believe in it still as a place where our fortunes could change and everything could be turned around um and I I feel like no one holds that same um uh sense about their own industry, about, about the literary industry or publishing, um, it, it still is sort of a dreamland, even as I know that it is a very real place, um, ballasted out by all of these, um, uh, both like dramatic reversals and completely mundane things that must be just as crushing when you're working under them.
0: <laughs> I feel like living away from it in like, you know, you're in Staten Island I know New York is like a media capital and they make movies and television there too, but I've got, I've become cynical. I was just texting with a friend about this, like over the past few days, how like I will make monolithic judgments, which is a human thing to do. You know, like you make these monolithic judgments like in conversation or in some sort of emotional fit that when you actually have some distance from them, you realize say more about you than they do about the thing that you're placing judgment on. And if there's a thing that I do that most often with, including on this program, it's probably about like Hollywood and Hollywood people. And I think maybe I would do a lot less of that if I didn't live here. I don't know. Like maybe some of the, some of like the, you know, some of the romance of it, which I certainly have some of, you know, that's why, you know, I was a film major in undergrad at (laughs) at Boulder, uh, incidentally, which I remember we talked about last time, but Um, I don't know. It it just feels like maybe I would do better if I had some, like some more geographical distance and maybe you feel something similar about publishing since you have proximity to it in New York.
1: Yes. I mean, I was, I was totally thinking this as you were um, saying what you were saying about being cynical about the film industry. Like, I think that, um, our optimism our sense of unbounded possibility um it's displaced to the other coast you know like uh california seems like a place to me where narrative things big narrative reversals can happen in your life and the east coast feels like a place that like has sort of been tapped out but from the west coast i think people feel the same way about the east coast and that's why we have this constant movement back and forth between the coasts
0: right it's like um
1: (laughs) yeah, this, um, mirrored desire or something.
0: Well, we have, we have a neighbor who's lived here for like 30 years or 35 years. And she worked at my son's school and she just announced that like she and her family are leaving LA after all this time and moving to upstate New York. And uh, (sighs) I feel like, you know, you could easily have that story happening in reverse any number of times, you know, per week, but yeah, there's some sort of like feeder system going on. And I think in the end it doesn't, really matter all that much where you are Like it's mostly between our ears, right? It's a psychological issue, not a geographical issue.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. But sometimes it's a lot easier to change your physical location than to change what's between your
0: ears. (laughs) Yes, it's so much more convenient. If I could just move to upstate New York and fix everything, it would be delightful. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm hoping you can put something to rest for me because I wanted to have like some sort of cool decoder moment where I explain to you, why you chose the title Elsinore Lane. I think it has something to do with Hamlet. Is it a Hamlet reference?
1: Yeah, it's a Hamlet reference. And I think, um, you know, it's one of the pieces of this book that I, um, I, I installed when I was starting out. And I was like, you know, this book can have anything in it. Like, it has to be bigger and more expansive and feel also like it's joining some disjointed elements. So why didn't I just, scoop some hamlet in there because literally seeing hamlet was the last thing i did in the regular world (laughs) i saw um, ruth nega playing hamlet in a um, performance in brooklyn so you know it's a constant part of my life but i also felt it was really relevant to this situation because it's a play that problematizes the whole question of um how is information linked to action like um uh, does knowing more and uncovering the truth change the way you act effectively on the problem? So that Hamlet um, has this intuition about his uncle's culpability right at the beginning. Um, but he's never actually able to direct that into intuition into like a decisive action against his uncle. He hurts like everyone else <laughs> um, on the sidelines, but, uh, knowing more doesn't really help him um, to do what needs to be done. So I, I think that's kind of, you know, a, a metaphor in some way um, adjacent to climate change. Like we know so much and we know ever more and we understand better how our dire predictions match up to like an increasingly dire reality. But still, the problem of action is is the same problem we've been posing to ourselves since the beginning of the whole thing. Um Maybe that sounds bleak.
0: (laughs) Well, no, I mean, and I want to talk more about this because this is an area of fascination for me as well. Um, But before we do, I want to uh, explain a little bit or maybe have you explain a little bit to readers or to listeners who might not have had the chance to read yet, like the territory that you're covering in your novel. So uh, we've touched on it a little bit you have an author named Patrick who has come West to Los Angeles in like a near future because they're adapting his novel mm-hmm. and the kind of backdrop to your story, if I may, is, uh, it's like, a you know, rapidly advancing climate change, you know, kind of like the, the, the circumstances are like much of what we're experiencing now, the fires and, um, the weird weather and the ominous news but maybe a little bit more intensified is that fair
1: yeah i think so um, although uh, i was doing my final edits in colorado um, last summer the summer before this past one and uh, one question that uh, you know, I pose to myself sometimes is what would I have done differently with this book if I uh, were to rewrite it now? And I definitely would have made the East coast a, a flooding zone right? <laughs> in a way that I hadn't imagined at the time. Yeah.
0: It's so weird how it's like yin and yang, you know, like the West is completely dried out and on fire and the, the East is flooded and constantly barraged with these like storms. So we need to like yeah. build like a national aqueduct or something and just like you know <laughs> send some water West. Really. <laughs> uh, but okay, so we've got um you know uh, the the advancing apocalypse of climate change. We've got a Hollywood story where uh, an author is out working as a PA on the set of the adaptation of his book. Um we have the story of Cassidy who is kind of like the archetype, the starlet like archetype, you know, um and a and a really cool character that subverts expectations and Um, I don't know. There's just, there's, there's a lot of dimensionality to her that I appreciated. And some of which surprised me, like she goes in some unexpected directions, but, uh, can you talk a little bit about her, uh, and the creation of her and, um, I guess, yeah, just her origin story as a character and how you came to write her.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, Cassidy Carter is someone who's probably modeled like on the surface level most after people like Lindsay Lohan or Britney Spears who are having their public breakdowns and you can't see it, but I'm doing breakdowns and scare quotes, finger quotes. Um, uh, Because it's a breakdown if someone is breaking you down, you know, Um, uh, it makes it sound like a sort of character flaw that they were, uh, experiencing on their own, but really like the pressure of having your image extracted from you at all hours of the day, the pressure of performing 100% of the time and of being judged for everything that you do, I think um, is a pressure that most of us maybe have had a a slight taste of, but cannot imagine at that scale or um, at that like level of relentlessness. So I was interested in the one hand on, in exploring um, the inner life of someone who had experienced that and how it would shape their attitude toward things like their own authenticity, um, their own goals, their career, their idea of success. But, um, I was also just interested in this fundamental confusion. I think that comes of trying to switch between, um, different modes that are, you know, Expected of you or asked of you by the world. And um, on set is one small example of that. Like uh, Cassidy, um, at one point in this movie's filming, is asked to come onto basically a, a pure green screen with a ladder on it and imagine that that ladder is a tree and that she is sort of a demonic vampire bride type figure um, climbing to the top of this tree. And then gazing around this whole world that she has to just imagine is there. And we watch her do it, and Patrick sees that she actually does believe she's seeing something when she looks around the top of that quote tree. Um, And it gives him sort of chills because, you know, to leave reality um, is a frightening thing because what if you don't find your way back? She's um, someone who's been sort of pushed to leave reality so many times and has kind of found her way back or has found something to hang on to, but it isn't always the most substantial and most grounding things. In in fact, like um, her main commitment to authenticity or to the idea that like, I know that there's something real in this world ends up being um, her refusal to drink anything but 100% old fashioned um, natural water. Which most people aren't drinking.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, in that brings time. me to like to the next layer of your story, or like a significant part of it, is that in this sort of uh, fictional near future, water is water scarcity has become so dire in the West and in Southern California that a artificial water product called like water, like W-A-T hyphen R, uh, has become the norm and it figures into the movie production itself like the producers of the movie are into it i think they were like early investors weren't they in in the yes. in the product so they have like a they have back end points <laughs> on water <laughs> uh, but you know this is like like your book is doing a lot of different things at once you know it's this kind of like old hollywood story there's like an element of satire to it but then there's also um you know, there's also a domestic drama, Patrick and his wife and, and daughter, his wife and daughter remain back East and are getting involved in a, uh, in a kind of echo cult, if that's the way of putting it, um, mm. you know, because, uh, his wife is like, she, she sort of sees the, the threat and the future that we are bequeathing to our, to our children, uh, with regard to climate, she sees it clearly, I think. And so sort of goes crazy. <laughs> Um, but you know, but like in, in a way that like, I think it's easy to sort of chuckle, but I, I often say, uh, I was saying this in the, in the context of talking about Sinead O'Connor, not too long ago,
1: mm-hmm. where
0: I read this profile of her and I was like, oh my God, like we all got her or so many people got her so wrong. And she was the one who was sounding the alarm and, and speaking the truth and was actually the most sane of all, and so that's kind of how I felt about the Allison character. you know she's that kind of character who it's easy to sort of ridicule or marginalize or write off, and the truth is that she's just got twenty twenty vision, you know yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah so there's so there's the domestic drama, and I'm just trying to give listeners like the overview um, and then there's like this this uh water, you know what are. How do you pronounce that? Do you have an idea?
1: Uh, I I say what r. What r. I, I think um it should feel a little bit like there's something in your throat trying to get it out. Yeah, it
0: can't sound like water. It's got to be what r. And uh, the what r. I feel like is like almost a, like a science fiction has like a science fictiony macabre um like storyline uh, to it and am I missing anything? Like, is there another big like Um, thread or through Not a
1: big thread, but there is a sort of subplot with, um, uh, Cassie Carter's sort of career making role as Cassie King kid detective and all the people who are still obsessed with that show years later and think that it contains some actual clues to say a real crime that happened, um, in the United States somewhere. Um, but I think that that's, uh, it's more of a simple line. It's not a base part or percussive element. It's a little flourish.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. So just, I feel like that just gives sort of like the architecture of the story, um, to listeners so that they have their bearings a little bit. And then, you know, I want to get back to, uh, climate and to the ways that, you know, we have this information as you were saying earlier. Um, it's ominous, you know, if you've read, um, oh God, what's the New Yorker beat writer who's written all those books, like the sixth extinction and, um, Oh yeah.
1: Elizabeth Colbert. Yeah. Elizabeth Colbert. Yeah. If you've read
0: like one of her books or you've read the Benjamin Wallace Wells, uh, he wrote a good one that's like terrifying and put me in the fetal <sighs> position. But like any of these, um, you know, writers who are working this beat and trying to report the facts, it's all there. We we know more or less what's coming and it isn't good unless we like radically change really, really quickly in unprecedented ways. Uh, yeah. And yet we don't typically, or at least to date, we haven't really acted with a commensurate urgency. Uh, are we doomed as a species? <laughs> Alex Kleeman, please tell me. <laughs> well,
1: as a species, speaking as a member of my species, um, you know... I think the tricky thing with ends of the world is um, they've been happening for a long time. You know, the arrival of colonialism to uh, a lot of different black and brown places on the planet was an end of the world for those cultures or civilizations. And it's never evenly applied so that I think that right now in this country, we're still in a place where we feel like, oh, the bad things are impending. They're, They're sort of looming before us in this way that feels stark and clearer than before. But these changes are are present and palpable, like in a really concrete way that has reshaped daily life for people in lots of other countries, like island countries or areas that are really subject to desertification. So um, there will always be people who feel the brunt of these changes more and people who feel it less. But I think... What I wanted to do with this book is, you know, try to erode that barrier between like this is our normal everyday life, and this is the thing that's coming, and we can only imagine what it would be like um, if it affected our daily lives and, and and try to blend them because I think um, even now, you know, three years after I started writing the book or so, um, we can see, Differences in, in our daily life and then how we exercise, go outside, vacation, drive home, um, what we find on the shelves as a result of supply chain issues with COVID. Um, and the idea of the normal um, is, is kind of shifting and is held in place by this old idea of the normal that has such a big, uh, um, such a wealth of examples from TV, film, books and culture to ballast it you know but um I, I think it's it's becoming time to start thinking of the normal as um as a new abnormal
0: yeah I think we're there I mean if we're, and if we're not there we're it's it's coming soon and I feel too off like a couple of things come to mind first of all the fact that I'm now at the point where like every time I drive my car I feel bad Uh, I don't know if that's, I mean, is that too intense? That feels, that feels like it's commensurate with the situation that we're in. I think I also feel bad about uh, flying. Not that I've done that in the past two years because of COVID. Um, But, you know, getting on a plane, burning jet fuel for like a relatively needless vacation or something like that. Like, you know, like, yeah. I I don't know. And then I can also hear somebody say, oh my God, these ridiculous austerities. You have to live your life like you're such a scold and a like a Debbie Downer or whatever. But where are we supposed to land on this when you're trying to like take in the facts and then, like you say, like, you know, um, come up with an action plan, you
1: know? I know, I know. I mean, I, I think there's this fantasy of extracting yourself from the web work of all these choices like that you need to get groceries and you need the car to get the groceries and you need um, uh, the plane travel to sustain your job or to escape from your job every so often. And like, you you think all these things are connected, but what if I could just lift myself out of it and live like a different life? And that also, um, you know, is an approach that appeals to me that I put in the book in terms of earth bridge, the eco cult slash eco commune that Allison goes to live in, but it also feels sort of like an escapist maneuver. Like you're not changing the world by living in this way, but you are making um, it perhaps less physically comfortable for yourself, but more psychologically comfortable because you're not dealing with that cognitive dissonance. So um, I don't know. And I struggle a lot with the question of um, when I make a individual change in my life, like when, I decide that um, I'm taking only public transportation, you know, to get to other places in New York City. That even if it's faster to drive, I'm just going to do the ferry and read on the ferry. Um, it feels like it doesn't change the world ultimately, but I do think it shows you that these habits that we can get pretty hardwired into us are, are breakable at any point. And in the same way that the pandemic has, you know, things that um, you couldn't imagine doing another way, you find you can stop doing them completely or you can um, do them all over Zoom, however clumsy that feels at first. Um, and it's a reminder of the fragility of normalcy, like in, in, in the good and bad ways. Like normal life could be something very different, I think, if we imagined it differently.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how uh, how well I can convince myself that change is incredibly difficult and to like shift gears and to be in a different mode would just require all this stuff. And like, you know, this is like a small bore thing. But like at, after a year and a half of being inside with my family, we rented a place this summer and kind of got out of the city you know like went yeah, like, yeah not that far even but just went out into the country a little bit and i was like oh like that was easy like i had it built up in <laughs> my i had it built up into my head as this like i don't know like logistical quagmire and it's like really like once you get past the basic nuts and bolts expense of it you just get it, you just get up there and you're there and it's, it's fine. And you slow down, you know, and it's not, you know, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I can trick myself very easily. And I think that you could probably take that same equation and apply it to all sorts of different circumstances, but it's amazing what necessity, like necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like this pandemic happened and boom, like businesses changed their mode of operation on a dime. And for years they had said, we can't do remote it's impossible and you know actually it was totally possible yeah yeah
1: and and we found out sort of um well both how much could be done remotely um but that's so much of what you think only happens in physical uh congregation also happens remotely with a different different feel to it like i I've, I've been on some Zoom birthday party is that you know I, I dreaded so much beforehand because I, I was like this is going to be the worst. um But when you settle into like the awkwardness, it's the same awkwardness you'd find at the physical birthday party. It's just a little bit different. It's still like you can people m- you trying can... to find something to say to one another. Well, and
0: you can mute yourself. I mean, there are some there are some benefits to this Zoom arrangement. Yes. You can mute <laughs> other people. It's fantastic. They don't even know. You know.
1: Oh, yeah. and, and you're always surrounded by snacks in your home. That's the thing I've appreciated the most. <laughs> right,
0: right. So, um, one of the things I think about with regard to climate and like the situation that we're in now and the situation, you know, to an accelerated extent that your characters are, are in, is it's hard not to notice during COVID uh, and with, you know, climate, I think, having some sort of impact, how it's affected people's migratory patterns. Um, mm. A lot of people fleeing the city for the country. A lot of people selling off their expensive like Manhattan apartment and moving upstate with their family for a little bit more space. And you know yeah. that like that whole trend. Like and I have, I have to say, I fell prey to some of that. That was part of like this, uh, part of this You know, this past summer's a uh, getaway. Like was just wanting to get out of the city because I think that congestedness, you know, is intensified when you're dealing with a global pandemic. Yeah. Um, but one of the like one of these like sort of like fictional possibilities that i think is probably going to come true that i often entertain is what i uh, euphemistically refer to as like bipolarism which mm-hmm. is to say that i think we're headed for a future probably somewhat soon where the the perils of climate change become so real that especially like in the like for example in the hottest months of the year You're going to have a certain privileged set of the country that flies to the southern hemisphere during the summer and then comes back to the north. And there's going to be people who – and I think it's tied to what we're talking about with regard to, like, remote work and everybody sort of going into this online existence. Like, I think you're going to just have, like, a certain subset of the population who can afford it who are just going to fly south for the summer when it's – you know, when it's – it's good for them and then fly north for the summer when it gets too hot down South. Right.
1: Absolutely. And I think you already see that a little bit with people who, um, you know, fled New York city during the pandemic or who, um, left California during the fires, you know, going to someplace where you have better air quality. Um, it, it makes so much sense, but it's also such a mark of privilege too. Right? And, um, I think a lot about how people reacted during the pandemic when Americans were no longer allowed to travel overseas, you know, the feeling that a freedom, like something that had um, always mm, boosted the way you move through the world, the sense that you could go anywhere, even if you're not going anywhere right now, um, having that taken away was a real psychological glow. Um, So that, you know, I think that even as, we see people taking advantage of this sort of migration to, to avoid or to place themselves in, um, more optimal zones. Uh, it's going to contrast really largely with, with, you know, the waves of refugees and migrants who would like to come to America, but are are prevented from for sort of in some ways, you know, arbitrary and imposed reasons, you know, um, uh, National borders are all imaginary in some sense, like they're made real by how we legislate them and enforce them. And um, it feels increasingly like if you have the money, there are no borders (laughs) close to you.
0: That's right. That's right. And I think that uh, there's a passage in your book, and I'm not going to say, I don't want to give context because I don't want to give anything away. But I do want to give a shout out to this particular passage, which mimicked to a haunting degree, like my internal monologue at certain weaker moments, <laughs> where yeah. there are characters talking about going to New Zealand and living on a farm with the wallabies. And, yeah. you know, I feel like that channel something, I don't know, maybe it like outs me as somebody for whom, like, such a thing. I don't know i guess you can dream it it doesn't make you a bad person to dream of such a thing i I want to make sure to underscore that that's not within the realm of possibility for me i do not own a farm in new zealand or like a a safe house but this idea of like having a shelter from the storm essentially uh and and also having a place that you can go to where you have contact with nature and some semblance of nature preserved as it once was or as it lives in our imagination or our memory like that moves me um because it's so it's so dreadful to think of all the species who are going that are going extinct and all the beauty that we're losing you know to Mm -hmm. wildfires and to you know the acidity of the oceans and you could just go down a list and and take it off like there's a lot of grief
1: yeah i i mean it moves me too and i think that um you know, what's happening psychologically with climate grief, like it's hard even to articulate how immense it is. It's, it's that we're grieving a world that we grew up in and we came up in um, and that we recognize as familiar. We're grieving it while it's sort of still here. It's this paradoxical homesickness for a place that we still have, but we feel that we're losing and we feel we don't know if there's anything that we personally can do to keep it there with us. So it's a lot to live under, I think, um, uh, because, um, people have felt this sort of upheaval in the past and especially, um, with loss following, you know, uh, wars or economic collapse and things like that. Um, but, this has to do with the loss of a world. So it's hard to imagine where you can go, where you can escape that loss and start over, you know, which I think is always something that drives you to hope when you're dealing with a more localized kind of crisis.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny. I'm thinking of something that the former governor of California, um, Jerry Brown, that's his name, right? I'm just blanked yes. on him. But yeah, he was saying like, somebody was like, well, you know, uh, former governor, the state is on fire. You know, what are you going to do now? Are you going to get out of here? And he's like, where would I go? You know, (laughs) which like kind of struck me because I've had a similar thought, like, I guess we got to get out of here. The place is on fire. There's no water, but it's like, what am I going to do? Move to Portland? It's smoky up there too. And, or go to New York and and have it flood. I mean, like, there's really not a safe place. I think it's going to be seasonal. I think it's going to have a lot to do with money. And like I said, my yeah. prediction is that you're just going to have the money to lead just flying back and forth from northern to southern hemisphere every yeah. six months.
1: But you won't find another place where you can stay year round that offers consistency and stability all the time. It'll be your mobility that kind of keeps you in, in the temperate zone. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right.
0: That'll be the yeah. new norm. You
1: know, what you're saying, it it does remind me of Ted Cruz's sort of Cancun jaunt during the
0: um, power outages and cold snap in uh texas the so right right perfect it's, example perfect <laughs> example like he's like oh i'm getting out of here while well, uh you know my uh, constituents suffer and freeze to death you know but that's that i think there's going to be that kind of callousness and you know i think i mean not to get too bleak but i do think you sort of have to reckon with these things because they're here and they're going to be escalating in the in the days ahead most likely but you talk about like climate level changes, like the rising seas and the rising temperatures and the melting ice caps and the increased drought and all that kind of stuff. All of that, very difficult and bad. But the human fallout from things like that, the mass migrations from things mm-hmm. like that, I think that is where we have only just begun to uh, to see big, huge, you know, immediate shifts in ha- in our world. And, you know, you think about like Southeast Asia, I'm thinking yeah. of places like, I don't know, I could have this wrong, but like Bangladesh, isn't Bangladesh like m- gonna be really inundated when the seas rise a certain amount or places yeah, places yeah. that have huge pop, the, the point is places that have huge population centers, millions and millions and millions of people, especially when those people tend to be poorer and without resources suddenly flooded and without a home or access to food, clean water and all that kind of stuff like that's where i think this is going to get really hairy is when suddenly right. there's like 3 million people on the move looking for sustenance. <laughs> like what are you going to do? Yeah. And what's that going to yeah. what's that going to do? Like how is the rest of humanity going to respond to that is my conundrum.
1: Yeah, no, definitely and i mean i think so much of um how we think about Resources and abundance and having enough is psychological because um, uh, there are times e- even now where I feel like people feel imperiled, but actually, um, you know, there's the space and resources to sustain, you know, a large migration in. Um, if you, even just looking at the United States, right, we're going to have climate migration here. um m- perhaps mostly from the south to um, northern areas as hurricanes get stronger, as it becomes impossible to uh, preserve, for example, drinking water from becoming salinated as sea levels rise. And um, it's easier, right, psychologically for countries to go, like, these are people from another country. We have no obligation to uh, allow them to resettle in other areas. But um, what about when there are people who are American citizens? You know, um, it's something that's going to come up both at an international level and at a national and maybe very local level, too. And uh, to assemble, you know, the right attitude toward people who need to move because of their climate is something that we have to start working on now. You know, what... um, uh what about this area that we live in that's fairly protected or fairly stable truly belongs to us? Why shouldn't it belong also to someone else? How can we make these areas more resilient and able to handle handle influxes of people that we think will come, knowing that their change is coming, you know? Um there's a lot that we can do in terms of resilience, I think, that falls short of stopping climate change entirely. But will make for a much better life for everyone coming up, and and that's something that I think happens at the individual, community, and local levels.
0: Do you have hope? Seems
1: more manageable in a way.
0: Do you do you you, you think we can pull this off? Do you think the human humanity can get its act together enough to make the necessary adjustments without too much chaos?
1: Uh, I think I think there will be chaos, but I think that we absolutely haven't in us to devise a better system and to meet people with generosity and with humanity you know um it's something that i think about a lot because i used to read a lot um post-apocalyptic novels i taught a class on them and a whole semester spent reading post-apocalyptic novels does things to your psychology like you um you feel mournful and and down a lot of the time and um I I began to feel that the similarities between these books and the genre of the post-apocalyptic novel in general, like is a self um, reenacting one because uh, human beings are so much more than, you know, resource hoarders and resource guarders and tribal individuals, you know, as, um, humanism might be to regard someone you with suspicion. It's also extremely human and maybe more so to regard them with interest and like, um, a certain basic level of welcome. And so much of ha- what we think we're capable of and how we think we'll react to things is a fiction we're actively creating and telling ourselves. So to tell ourselves the other story, I think would change the way that, um, we meet the world and meet the changes that are coming in it. You know, this book isn't isn't that I think, but this is what I'm I'm working on. Um, something like cautiously utopian, like just a not bleak version of the future for my next work. Oh, really? Yeah,
0: I can understand that psychologically how you would want to go there, but but also creatively, that's an interesting creative project yeah. because. I think, and I think, uh, I'm excited about that because I do think if we want our kids or my kids or grandkids or whatever it is to have a better future, as they say, it does take imaginative work. We have to imagine it if it's ever going to come to be. So that's a worthy project. I hope you finish it. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I hope so too. You know, um, uh, just that We look to literature to have, um, you know, human stories told to us, to have our reality shown to us in a way that reactivates feeling, I think. But I think we could also look to it for other ways to live and, um, and other ideas for how life might be that we can bring into our own lives in, in small or in part or in
0: whole. Okay. Now I'm thinking, I'm just trying to imagine what this better way of being and better world might look like. I I have had in recent months, like a lot of, um, like urban commune fantasies, some of which is, some of which is already happening. I think this is, uh, you know, something I've touched on previously on this show, but I kept, this happens to me all the time where I'll be like, I just have this feeling that this is coming. I just mm-hmm. I keep thinking about urban communes and, like, I can kind of feel the tendencies of people and some sort of weird, like, process. You know, it's, I feel it. And then somebody will be like, actually, that already happened, like, six years ago and it's a venture back startup from Silicon Valley and they're making money. <laughs> so, like, whatever. I was, like, fantasy, you know, I was, like, thinking of myself as some sort of prophet, but I'm always, like, late to the party and just didn't even realize it. But um, <sighs> that said, I do think, like... Like more communal living arrangements, I'm not talking about communism per se, but just like group living arrangements, something more co like a more cooperative mode. That's like got a a stronger social component. Um, yes, you know that is like what you were talking about with respect to the Earthbridge. Um, you know, there's a place called Earthbridge in your novel where Allison, uh, Patrick's wife, and his daughter Nora. It's Nora, right? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, it's Nora. <laughs> so
0: Allison and Nora are there throughout the novel, you know, sort of trying to embed themselves in this new community and, um, you know, try to live a, a saner existence. Like, you talked about how it might not be materially better for the world, but it's like psychologically better for the people involved. I think there's yeah. tr- I think there's truth in that. Like if you live in a communal arrangement, it's not that you're going to wind up in a perfect utopia. It's going to be messy and people are going to betray one another and there's going to be fighting and everyone's going to be annoying. But like, (sighs) what's the alternative to live in like kind of quiet isolation? Um, Yeah. To
1: be all cordoned off and segmented off in your little unit. Like, there is something that really appeals to me about what they do in earth bridge. And I think it falls short of being like, this changes the world, but um, just for one example with the pandemic, like it, imagine um, the benefits for childcare for people who don't have daycare and, and other caretaking things that they're used to. If you can swap off that role with other people who you trust and care for and who who live right by you like I think some people were lucky enough to work that out in their current environments but um to think about uh, what it might look like if you lived in a community of mutual support self-designed um you know that seems like a better way of living to me and one that's more resilient in terms of the psychological stress that we've all experienced in the last year and a half, and the isolation, and the you know um, the sense of disconnection.
0: Yeah, well, and, and all, not only that, it also helps to offset some costs. I mean, it's like more because yes. I'm thinking of this uh, the the venture back startup that I'm um, you know using to make myself the butt of the joke is called Treehouse. Did you happen to read about this? It was in uh, the New- ah. the New Yorker not too long ago. And, oh, uh, no. and it's basically like urban communal living. So it's like, I think when you usually think about these things, you think about earth bridge being like out in the boonies and, you know, it's people yeah. kind of going back to the land, but this particular one is like there it's in LA and it's a group of people yeah. who come from like really disparate backgrounds and age ranges and everything else. And they all live in this sort of like hive and support one another. And there are some shared facilities, but everybody's got their own like unit I don't know. It's just sort of, and it's like, it appeals to me on the level of like conversations I've had at backyard parties in LA yeah. where, I'm, where people are like, I wish we all lived closer. I wish yeah. we could, could, what if we, what if we all just lived on the same block? Like how many times have people had some permutation of that conversation in their adult lives? And I think that something along these lines could address that. Um, and could become much more common in the days ahead. It's just a guess. Yes.
1: I mean, you know, I think that we could dream collectively of living like that the same way that we currently dream collectively of living in a much larger standalone house with a pool, you know. That dream is kind of an artifact of this this resource boom when um, uh, America went from being kind of, middle class to being highly resourced or something, to having the potential to to grow much, much more. And um it it like led to discrete houses, suburbs, like things sort of spaced apart but together and um and encapsulated in this way that um must have felt good psychologically within their context, but now feels like it, it keeps us from each other. And and so, you know, I think there's an appetite for for some other American dream, you know?
0: Yeah, I think so, too. And I think that there is the irony of, uh, I don't know, the ways in which, like, you know, the suburbs are sort of nominally supposed to foster a sense of community and peace and quiet and sanity and, you know, what they ultimately wind up doing all too often is making people feel um, bubbled and kind of isolated from one another. And the same is true for urban living. Like, like even when you're living on top of, uh, you know, one another in like Manhattan, there's endless tales of people feeling isolated and lonely in New York and like walking the crowded streets feeling like a, you know, like a um, molecule floating around or whatever. And so it's like, what's the, what's the answer to greater, um, human connectivity and like deeper and more meaningful social relationships, which they always say is like the key to health. In which case, like I'm like, I'm fucked. Like I better keep podcasting because this is like, this truly is like my social, like when it comes to meaningful conversation of an extended variety, uninterrupted by children or technology, this is it. And, <laughs> and that is why I always rationalize the continuation of it because I'm like, look, in the absence of this, it's so hard to get even when you try because uh, everybody's always got a phone. Yes. Even when you're hanging with your like hanging with your friends, I can still leave those scenarios feeling scattered. I think the contr- yeah. the controlled nature of this, like, in the absence of this, I would have to say to my friends, like, we're gonna put our phones down now. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna put a microphone in front of you, but it's not even on. But we're just gonna pretend, you know, <laughs> like. Yeah. You know, I don't know.
1: Let's let's have a structured conversation about <laughs> a thief. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: I'm almost ready to go there, but it's uh, I I don't know. I think when you have a good, meaningful social interaction, whether it's on a podcast or it's in your like ordinary day to day life with a friend, you know it and you feel it, and it feels good. It feels like there's some medicine in it. Am I wrong?
1: Yes. No, you're so right, and and that's where you know. Um, I I often think that so much of what keeps us from having that be a more substantial part of our life is like um, schedules, uh, um, self-imposed ideas about productivity, um, about work. And if we were to produce a bit less and generate less wealth or something as a society, but spend more time with each other, I think we would be much happier.
0: Yeah, I could not agree more. And I mean, I think like... It's kind of anathema to the, the narratives that we're kind of fed, you know, especially living in the States, you know, by the culture and even by the government, you know, it's that do more, be more, get more, have more. And it's making us miserable on a lot of levels. And, you know, I think you have to be willing to engage with what feels counterintuitive, which is have less money, have fewer things live in a smaller house closer to maybe others have more time at your own disposal and be happier (laughs) like it shouldn't be that hard it shouldn't be that hard for us to accept it but i think there's a lot of fear and resistance you know i think especially when it may as maybe especially when it comes to people having to grapple with the possibility of um, downgrading their living standard you know, Mm -hmm. in exchange for more happiness, it's like, well, wait, I've got X house with X amount of square feet and this, that, and the other amenities. And you're telling me that I'm, would be happier if I let it go and, you know, move someplace else that was cheaper. And I don't know, like those are, those are real life things that are maybe hard for people to process sometimes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it can be hard, I think, to imagine being happier, you know, but you can imagine having more or having something specific, different, um, that's associated with happiness or with success in your mind. Like, I think, um, it's hard to sell people on a change to their life that they can't experience first, but you can test drive a car. (sighs) Right, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I just bought some, like, socks. I was napping my son, okay? And I, it's something I've been meaning to do. These like mundane things where I'm like, I just you know, it's time. I need to like get some yeah. new socks. And I he was sleeping and then I'm on my phone and it's so fucking easy to buy things these days. Do you know how easy it oh, was? Yes. It was like the double click, the double click on the side of my phone and yeah. you know, it's like, Oh, that's like almost disconcerting how they I know. they definitely have a a plan with me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And with everybody else. But um the point is that after I finished buying like a dozen pair of socks, I was like, did I, do I really need those socks? <laughs> like, do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, did I just go yeah. through the whole psychological process that we just described? Like maybe in miniature where it was like, if I just get these socks, like, I'll feel like I got something done today even though I'm tethered to this bed while my son naps. And you
1: know, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, especially, um, this thing you point to in the experience, the sort of like lightness or flimsiness of the act of buying, that it was so easy, like it then like lends that flimsiness to the thing you bought. And you're like, why did I just get all these things? Like, was I certain? Like I didn't hold them, I didn't feel them, but they're coming for me. Right. Yeah. And they will be
0: here in 24 hours. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, you know, I, I do that sometimes. I'm not like a huge shopping person. Like I don't have that. I think it can become an addiction. You know, people just get used oh, to just, absolutely. you know, but sometimes it happens. And I think there's more and more, it's sort of like feeling bad about driving my car more and more. It's like, do I really need this item? Yeah. Like, because someone's going to have to ship it. That's going to burn fossil fuels. Someone's making it. It's, you know, all the different uh, consequences that are attached to that consumer choice. And, you know, just as like sort of a little sidebar when it comes to climate change and Again, all of this is a concern of Alex's book, so we're not off on a tangent here. Like, we're we're, we're well within the bounds of this uh, novel. But I, when I start to feel hopeless or helpless or what do I do about climate change, I do think, like, aggregate consumer choice over a long-haul period of time is probably the best, like, power of one move that you can make. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so I think about, like, and and I'm not for those people listening at home, I'm not proselytizing, but I am a mostly vegan person and have been my whole adult life. Um, Everybody's got to make their own choices on the, on this stuff. So I'm not saying that you have to be like exactly like me, but I am saying that I am made to feel good. Sometimes when I think about the aggregate consequence of all of those consumer choices over all the years, like, I'm like that's not a small dent. You know, I know I'm just one person, but that's like thousands and thousands of dollars in the economy that hasn't gone that's towards insane. like factory farming and you know, the clear cutting of rainforests that we have to do to in you know, graze cattle and all the rest. Do you see what I'm saying? Like
1: Totally. And you know, um I I also I'm a vegetarian. It's not natural to me, totally, because I grew up in a very a household that equated meat with health, you know? If you get sick, eat some meat or eat drink chicken soup or something. Um and it it doesn't always feel super righteous to just decide, no, at this point, even though it's convenient and I'm driving cross country, I still won't eat the chicken fingers. Um but Overall, you know, I think it makes a dent and meets psychological hold on our minds, like big meat. Right. And it, um, uh, it also just shows me that, you know, I can carve my own sort of path through the consumption matrix of this country, which is designed to push you toward certain things. Um, uh, you can you actually have agency in avoiding those things and sort of lessening the normalization of those things in the culture, you know, like there's, um, there's something really valuable. I think about breaking a habit for yourself. And, um, as like this sort of gesture of, you know, um, I do have agency here, even if the agency is just to say no (laughs) to this particular option.
0: Yeah, no, it makes you feel good. I think that's what I was getting at is that I was like, okay, I actually feel good about this. Like, uh, yeah, Like it feels like, uh, is that accomplishment, the right word? It feels like a substantive thing to do within the, with the acknowledgement that like there's only so much that an individual human can do, you know, but if many of us do this, I think if like many of us just not even stopped entirely, but just greatly reduced or markedly reduced our meat intake and drove market demand down, it would have a significant impact on climate. Just as like one example, so. I don't know, is that something we could get a lot of people on board to do? It doesn't seem like it, but if I can do it and you can do it. (laughs) Yes,
1: yeah, if if I can do it and I was raised the way I am, then you can do it and you know, like literally I would email you if you're thinking of or like interested in lessening your meat consumption because I don't think that there has to be a strict ethical line that says don't eat meat. Um, Just eating less of it consistently I think helps the world. I want to invite you to email me or Twitter DM me. You can email me at com and I'll tell you some of the ways I, like a person who has been um, deeply connected to the metasphere much of my life, and um, and living and and happy and you know probably eating too much cheese sometimes, but. Um that's also my tendency well, hey, <laughs> as a
0: person. <laughs> you know, we all have to have a vice. But you know, you're talking to a guy whose grandfather was a butcher. I mean my grandfather's a Sicilian butcher. So if you're in the meatosphere, mm-hmm. then I'm definitely in the meatosphere. Is, is that the right word? Meatosphere?
1: <laughs> I think I just I mean, does it sound right to you? We can coin it. <laughs> <laughs> say,
0: let's get a trademark on meatosphere. Um let me I'm talking to my attorney off camera here, but um I wanna ask you before we go to talk a little bit more about the composition of this book uh, you alluded to it earlier and I'm curious about placing you in time you know you said that you finished edits on this book in the summer of 2020 which would have yeah. put us like several months into the pandemic and yeah. i think of like the the haunted feeling of this book um you know especially towards the end it kind of it kind of grows there's like this gathering sense of of uh dread but also like a gathering sense for me of recognition of like what you were up to as an author you know like it starts to coalesce like that's i guess the way it's supposed to work you know coalesces Mm -hmm. at the end but i think maybe particularly so for a book like yours which is so layered and is kind of doing multiple things at once you know it just feels like they kind of came together at the end and you start to realize um I don't know you start to realize how dark and macabre um, the possibilities are I don't want to give away too much but I think you know what I'm driving at and the yeah. question that I have for you is how much of this book was composed after the pandemic began mm. and obviously it was composed i think at least in part while uh we were dealing with the trump presidency and all of the apocalyptic uh undertones that it you know had or overtones that it yeah. you know brought to the table so it's just like i don't know just talking about how those things might have impacted the mood and the execution of your novel
1: yeah i mean i think it's a really interesting question and i'm really interested um what we're going to see coming out of the literary world in the coming year, two years, three years. Because it seems like this is a time when the Trump era novels are really coming out. The things people started and um, finished roughly at about the time he left office. I really felt like there was a different feel to those years. And in specific, like one thing that inspired the form of this book um, was the sense of uh, the personal sphere being displaced by the global sphere you know um, the personal problems being displaced by a national problem or environmental problem or um, uh, like gross social injustice the way that um, you can try to to dwell solely like in your um, set sort of personal concerns and, and problematics and stresses but the s- situation keeps returning you to some larger picture some some picture that's not um, exclusively your own you know so that I was thinking of this book as um, sort of like two tectonic plates that meet and one is a sort of ecological storyline involving water and one is the Hollywood narrative and in, in plate tectonics there's this motion called subduction, where one plate slides under another and is melted down into magma Um, so it's sort of the disappearance the dissolution of the threads that patrick was following at the beginning his dreams of um, climbing to some sort of greater status or fame Um, eventually his concerns are sort of to survive to get back to his family to try to get to someplace safe or get out of harm's way And, um, you know, that's one macro movement that I think, um, really mirrors the larger sort of place where as a society that, um, as much as we feel cordoned off and and separate from one another in our own particular psychological situation, we're actually part of a larger psychological situation. That is, there's mourning, there's malaise, there's anxiety about the future. And um the feeling that these are solely personal emotions keeps us separate from one another a little bit, I think, because there's solidarity or there's community and feeling the same way together. But we're taught to treat our our anxiety and our negative feelings as things we struggle with alone, you know? We're on a raft of mourning that could though I think take us someplace um different from the world we've been living in, in and a world that's more sustainable in a world with more hope to
0: it. Yeah. I mean you know you would think that like if there's gonna be big radical change among the masses of humanity, it is likely to be occasioned by like seriously intense suffering. Uh hopefully not you know hopefully not the kind of suffering that involves like lots and lots of death or anything like that, but I'm talking maybe more Mm -hmm. like psychological or spiritual suffering, you know, where people are forced into new modes of thinking and acting. Um, I'm thinking too of just like on narrower terms, as you were talking about the literary community and about the raft of um, Trump era novels and memoirs that we're going to be seeing in the years ahead uh, I was reflecting on the fact that I wrote a novel or at least the bulk of it and finished it during 2020. I was, I was very productive in 2020, which I almost, I forgot to laugh about it. Cause I'm like, wow, what, what does that say about me? That like, I was like, this is my time, <laughs> everything's going to shit. And like, I, for whatever reason, like it, it brought me some focus. Um, yes. and I, I don't think that's necessarily. I mean, some people I think were just like shut down like I can't do shit. I'm stuck in my apartment and I'm just going to watch Gilmore Girls and you know uh, Tiger King or whatever it was and um yeah. just like take edibles and try to forget about life. But um I I could be wrong. But like the way that I've been like lensing my life to an unusual degree maybe I guess during the pandemic, but maybe also tied to the Trump era. But I think the pandemic really brought it into high relief is through this lens of like, we're all going to die. Like time is short, Uh, not fatalistic in like a defeated cynical sense, but just like more like a realist, like probably doesn't matter. Don't be so afraid. Say what you need to say, say what you need to say. Like it doesn't fucking matter. And if I had that and I, I'm actually like, I hope other people had it and I'm eager to read those books. Like, yes. you know, like I like to yeah. hear from people who are like staring down mortality and like big existential questions, kind of like looking into the abyss and being like, what matters to me? Like, it yes. seems like we that would yield some cool art, right? I don't know.
1: Definitely. You know, like, um, uh, I feel like, reckoning with like our existential state at this moment like it sort of sounds too earnest for more time most times but during the pandemic what was there to do but reckon with that like the proximity of death the deaths that were happening around you both in a very near way and in this statistical way that you agree about and go like what can this possibly mean how can we possibly endure losing this many people a day you know um those sorts of questions no longer felt like you're you're reaching but this just isn't the fabric of the time right um and i think that one of the ways it affected me most profoundly like i I had already written a full draft of this um but i was doing edits during the pandemic um for one thing though, i wasn't writing as many new things i was having really vivid experiences reading nonfiction about other places, because I couldn't leave my apartment here in New York. Um, And it made literature and and writing as a form of communication feel so essential. Like the words were more tactile. You needed to grab onto them. Um, And then I think there's also this feeling both in the good extreme and the bad extreme, extreme that everything is up for grabs. Like, the world can change so fast actually and a very different world might be left at the end of this um, ordeal, you know, um, that maybe we can have more agency in how we make it or remake it. Um, but it was, it was a license to sort of anxiety dream about the worst case scenarios and also imagine what else could could be going on after this, you know.
0: It's funny, and you know, I'm thinking like, what if like the pandemic eventually, hopefully fingers crossed recedes and we we ease back into like a more normal you know quote unquote normal mode of living? what if um like I don't know, the political situation in the United States improves, mm. and the ecological situation is like at least the worst of it is staved off? I'm trying to imagine like an, a positive future, yeah, and like people find like an equilibrium. You know that, like, the kind of like democratic equilibrium that, like, maybe I, I imagine like exists in like Finland or something. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where like people just have like some some basic like confidence in like the institutions of state, and there's like a education's good and blah blah blah. You know, like, what if we get to a place like that twenty five thirty years from now? I wonder what the retrospective on the books that we're talking about will be. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, they're going to be like, y'all were freaking out, you know, <laughs> like when like all these, like, you know, super feely, like existential, you know, books about the abyss come out. Um, I wonder how that would look in the rearview mirror if we get to a better place, I guess is the point.
1: Yeah, I mean, they'll probably have historians studying this time the same way historians study like the bubonic plague years and, right. and sort of specialize in it. And they'll write their dissertation on it and they'll say, while all these existential investigations may seem overblown to us, they were grappling with what they felt was um, the main, uh, decision point of their whole civilization. <laughs> right,
0: right. What am I going to wear on this zoom party call? What am I going to wear? It's crazy uh-huh. to contemplate. Uh, should, I mute myself? <laughs> should I, yeah, should I, this book called, should I mute myself? Uh, so I think, I think we've covered like most of it. I mean, there's so much that's happening in your book. People are going to have to read it um, for themselves. And I I don't like spoilers, so I don't want to get into, um, you know, some of the details that I loved that I think would maybe ruin people's Uh, read. So I won't go there, but, um, I do often ask, and we already touched on this, like what uh, an author is up to next. It sounds like you're kind of toying with the idea of utopia in, in your next fictional project, right? Fiction.
1: Yes. Fiction. Um, I'm working I'm um, at the early stages of working on a novel that's in five parts in five historical periods, but set on different islands. And it's about, you know, um, precarity of, of money or economic systems. Like when an economic system comes to an island for the first time in colonial times, or um, one is set in a bunker uh, with a, a guy who's got a whole hired security team to keep in company in his bug out bunker. Um, but is watching their relationships with one another develop and, um, sort of wondering if there's some loyalty that they have to one another that, that doesn't extend to him and and things like that. So, you know, um, not that those sound utopian, (laughs) those sound pretty dystopian to me too, but I think, um, uh, depicting like these transitional spaces and, um, in some later sections, like, uh, barter-based societies and like um things that feel local and close and connected in a way that kind of gives me something to aim for in in my own relationships.
0: <laughs> okay, well, yeah, that's interesting that you say that. Like barter-based economies and um, what was I? I was thinking of the Grateful Dead recently like which people ridicule me for but i like the dead and i have these like you know cherished childhood memories it was like a I grew up in the midwest and so like that was like culture to me it was a huge like cultural like mind explosion when i was like 17 and saw yeah. that for the first time because i wasn't raised on a coast or even like in boulder yeah. you know like boulder was like ah. Boulder was like I went like to some exotic place when I went to yeah. school there. So just to give you an idea of where I come from. <laughs> um, but no, I was thinking of like the tribal aspect of it and barter economy kind of feel. But especially the tribal nature of it. And was noting that like I often maybe don't factor that into why these memories are so cherished for me. And like why I have so much fascination with mm-hmm. that subculture to begin with and and admiration for it like however messy or dumb it could be or whatever you want to however you want to caricature it or criticize it but just the fact that this weird subculture sprang up that was kind of like a roving tribe uh i found that like really like i don't know it felt good to be near it that's all i can tell you i felt i actually liked it I, i i was like okay like this is people are it felt real, I guess, or something. Like realer than like being at Whole Foods. <laughs> yes.
1: And like, um, to be welcomed into a community, to have like the hospitality uh, that you extend to others and you feel extends to yourself when you join. Like, you know, um, Staten Island gets a bad rap, but there's this park we go to all the time and nothing bad ever happens at this park. It's only a good place. I love all the people there. And um, we were jogging the other day and this woman waved us over. And she's like, it's my 59th birthday. Like take some food, introduce yourself. And we we're like, well, that's not usually,
0: I'm you not, know, I'm uh, not touching this food. Does. I don't know what's going on. <laughs>
1: um, But, but we, she was like, these people, I didn't know them. But now that I know, and now I know them, that's Jeanette. Um, so we went up and we hung out with them for a while. And it was just so nice. Like um, it's, It's not it's uncommon, but it's not crazy to do that and to welcome people. It changed like the whole feeling posture of our day afterwards. And um these are the kinds of like situations and communities we can make for ourselves and for each other, I think, um on a larger scale and involving something bigger than sandwiches, but sandwiches are also good.
0: Yeah. I mean something as simple (laughs) as a sandwich. And I'm also like, you know, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. like you meet these people in this park, this woman brings you in. And I think it's worth noting that like, not everybody could pull that off. Like if I invited you over for sandwiches, you might be like, no, thanks. You know, (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much. But like (laughs) certain people have this like ability to facilitate these kinds of meetings. And it's a skill I wish I had more of. I mean, I kind of have it, but like, not like that. Like I wish that I had... That sort of, you know, it's almost like a southern thing, like this easy social grace, like, come on over and have some food and drink and we'll hang out and it won't be tedious and we'll all just have a laugh. And you know what I'm saying? Like when it's just easy to be around somebody.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think that everyone can develop their own version of that. Like you can't do it quite like this woman because it was as I was walking away that I realized, you know, I know this woman already. She's a woman who paid me a compliment about a year and a half ago. And I still remember it because it was it it was just like, you know, one of these perfect um, comments from a stranger sort of characteristic of New York City that makes you feel really good about yourself.
0: What did she may, Um, May I ask what she said?
1: Well um I was just starting to run I think um and uh you know she just saw me she was walking with like I think her boyfriend she was like hey looking good you look really good <laughs> and the way she said it made me go wow I really believe her like I'm I'm not questioning why she's saying that she just saw it felt it said it um and uh it, it was a masterclass in how to boost a stranger you know
0: Well this is another thing that has been on my mind recently. I uh, can't remember if I've been talking about it, but I've certainly been writing about it. And I uh, I have two godsons mm. and I write to them every month because I don't live near them. And I, I try to like, I try to remember in these notes, like what was going on in my life when I was their age and like try to talk mm-hmm. to them about like my recollections or whatever, you know? and and i also like share like regrets you know like i wish i would have known this or i wish i would have been more like this when i was your age but i was too yeah. you know too out of it to to, or just didn't have my shit together and one of the things that i was thinking back on was just how awkward i was around girls like awkward just <laughs> terrified you know like just not not smooth in the manner of like most adolescents you know i think but to greater and lesser degrees. I was just really shy. It followed me all the way through adulthood when it came to that sort of thing. And what I was writing to one of my gods, or my godsons was like, listen, here's the secret. Pay authentic compliments. They have to be authentic. You can't be a bullshit artist. But if you think a girl is cute or something, like think of why, like, oh, you like her eyes? Go up to her and just be like, you have really good eyes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> she and i was like
0: she will remember it for the rest of her life probably yeah like yeah i, I can true. i can remember like if somebody compliments me on something and if like you know you asked me about it i'd probably like 25 30 years later be like yeah i remember when that person told me that like i was good at such and such like we do not forget when somebody authentically compliments us
1: yes yes i mean it's it's being seen like feeling like you've been seen by someone else it's surprising and. um and, and it feels like a moment of real contact, you know, like it's a very special thing.
0: Yeah. It just feels good. And, in like, yeah. And like, especially when it's true, you know, and it's like uh and by true, I mean, authentic, like it's, you know, you know when someone's bullshitting you, but if they really are genuinely paying you a compliment, it's so nice. And we don't do enough of that as people. I don't do enough of that. Yeah. Um, I need to be better about like, finding things that I really like about people and then telling them like there there's plenty of things that I like about people I just don't tell them yeah
1: <laughs> I know I might um be more likely to tell my husband than to tell them directly you right know? right that's sort of <laughs> yeah. the way I've been conditioned
0: yeah why why is it awkward to like walk up to somebody and be like hey you know I like your uh sandwiches they're great Yeah. make good sandwiches <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you're working on this book, Islands, Financial Systems, or Economies, Systems of Economy. Yeah. It's somehow utopian, even though there's some darkness. Um, yeah. Are there any other creative projects? Like, I know you've dabbled in film and TV. Are there things that we should know about in that area?
1: Um, I Right now, my attention is sort of focused on a piece I'm writing about Nella Larson and a movie adaptation of her book. So um, I'm I'm writing about myself and my racial identity, like my multiraciality for the first time. And that's a little, it's a little intimidating to, you know, my writing is very personal, especially if you knew what I was drawing from and myself to write it, but you don't see me on the page necessarily. And it's intimidating to know I'm going to put myself on the page yeah with my own name
0: on it yeah so, I'm, I'm about to publish. I'm about to publish a book where like the main character is named Brad Listy, and I'm just like oh my god <laughs> it's just a referend it's just going to be like a referendum on me I feel like I'm so I woke up this morning at like 4:45. if I may be totally candid like I woke up at 4:45 45 <laughs> just because I think I was anticipating my kids getting up which is like you'd think I mean I, I oh, still yeah. had an hour but like I wake up and I'm like then I'm in that like zone where it's just dark and it's just me and I was like, yes. oh, God, like this is going to go out there and it's going to be like a judgment, you know, all those kinds of thoughts. So you just have to let it go. Right, Alex? Just, just let it go. Out you there. just
1: have to let it go. And, and you have to realize that Brad Listy is a different Brad Listy from your own Brad Listy, <laughs> But the similarity between them will draw me in to read the book because I would love to, well, let's to hope. experience fictional bad list is close <laughs> to the real one be, somehow. Be
0: careful what you wish for. Be careful what you <laughs> wish for. Uh, it is really nice to talk to you again. Uh, I appreciate you making the time. Congratulations uh, on this novel and the reception that it's gotten. And you know what? It sounds like I'm wrapping up, but I do have one more line of questioning if you have time. Uh, it, won't, yeah, it, it won't take too long, but I'm genuinely curious about this because uh, I feel like you are a younger i mean you're in your mid 30s now so you're not like super super young where it's like you're 22 or something and publishing <laughs> some book uh on a major press but you are somebody who i think has had a lot of success in publishing at a relatively young age like an enviable amount of success i think through the eyes of the culture or whatever and mm-hmm. your work has found embrace i feel like it seems like like the media coverage that it's getting is the kind of media coverage that a lot of authors would hope for. Like there's a New York Times profile and stuff like that. Um, it, you know, maybe it's all like a mirage. But I'm just curious, like, how did it happen? I think there are maybe people listening who are like, how did Alex pull this off? Like, how does she, yeah. like, because they have a novel that's in the works or a novel that's sitting in the drawer and they're like, well, how do I get from here to there? Like, yeah. how did this happen for you?
1: You know, so much of it has been luck, I think, because I was I was very lucky to have a story published in the Paris Review, for example, when I was still an MFA and it was just one person who saw it, sent it to another person, like not expecting anything, and then that person um, picked it up. There's a lot of pure luck involved, but also the most profound connections, I think, involve finding people who authentically connect with what you're writing and, and often that's with tone or it's with subject matter. It's in telling your story and getting that story out there. Um, because what I see more on this second novel cycle is that, um, the people who are, uh, interviewing me or who I'm talking to are are people who genuinely found something of themselves in the previous book that I wrote. Um, and you have the connection to it so that I, I feel like you could think like the connections that matter the most are the New Yorkers and um, uh, zoetropes. And I'm going to just try to reach out to those people, but um, to reach out to an author whose work inspired your own or really touched you to reach out to um, someone who writes about the same thing in a different Field or mode, like someone whose work uh was research for your own work um, it helps you find like those audiences that are organically interested in hearing your story rather than interested because it's um uh supposed to be a big book or supposed to be cool like these connections all have to be genuine because it's a world that demands a lot from your attention and a lot of your time so Um, to reach out to people you feel a real connection to and always look around you for um, people who might be readers of your work and whose work you can read in turn to form those sorts of communities.
0: And pay authentic compliments too. And pay authentic (laughs) compliments too, yes. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of of a piece. I think those two things are nice little bookends because I think they're very related. Um, and the, the authenticity of it is the key, you know, it can't just be like, Oh, I'm publishing a book. Sure. Would be nice to have so-and-so, you know, in my corner, you can't just reach out to them and blow smoke at them. If you, I think people can feel it when the love is real, you know, and you're coming to somebody with like a genuine sentiment, you know? So that's good advice.
1: There's a genuine affinity between your work and theirs, and that's something that they will see, you know? Um, and they'll see like, oh, this isn't just a person who saw that I was on the bestseller list, so they're reaching out to me. This is someone who who knows something about me and who I can find something in.
0: Yeah, okay, that's great advice. And uh, I've loved talking to you. Congratulations. I will let you get Thanks to the so rest good of to your day. Di- you, yeah, I'll let you get <laughs> to the rest of your day in this next book that you're writing uh, and whatever else. But uh, just appreciate the time and wish you well.
1: Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be on here, and I hope I see you again and talk to you again soon, maybe in person, that I'll get to pay you a genuine compliment. Oh, who
0: knows? Yeah, exa- try to come up with something good, please. I could use it.
1: <laughs> It'll be real. <laughs>
0: All right. Okay. Nice talking to you. Bye. Okay, guys. There you go. That is Alexandra Kleeman, and her new novel is called Something New Under the Sun, available now from Hogarth. You can find Alex online at alexandracleman.com. She is on Facebook, she is on Instagram. Her Twitter handle is at Alex Kleeman. Once again, the novel is called Something New Under the Sun. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? All 700-some-odd episodes of this show are available to you, the listener, free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, support this program if you can. You can do so for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreo dot com otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get prizes. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard. I will wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other pod. The other people podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that the entire archive of this show is now on YouTube free of charge. Every single episode up on YouTube, go to YouTube, search for the show by name, other PPL with Brad Listy, and then uh, subscribe. It's free. If you have something to say to me, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. And uh, don't forget, too, that this show has its own app, The Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. It's a good app. Go get the app. It's a great way to listen. So, I think that's it. Did I cover all bases? I might do another Sunday episode. I have a lot of episodes in the uh, hopper and so i may i may do one it depends it's tbd but rest assured i have a lot of good conversations in store for you and i hope you're doing well fall is here that's nice right halloween got to figure out what i'm gonna be